Welcome back to another edition of Billy West Live. Uh, great pleasure to welcome back to the show Dr. Julian Bales, uh, originally from Natchitoches, Louisiana, now in Chicago, Illinois. Julian, welcome back to Natchitoches. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, it's uh, always good to have you back. I know you visit every August and you try to come back and see your family and spend some time with a lot of your childhood friends and those kind of things. But it's great to see you. Uh, great to have you back. It's getting to be football season, Dr. Bales. Obviously, you get uh, called uh, to a lot of different shows around the nation to talk about football and safety, but I, I just wanted to get you on to talk about your thoughts about the game in general. A lot of things are happening with respect to head injury, your expertise. These guardian caps that we see on the NFL and college players now, which seems to be an external, like an extension to the hard shell of the helmet. Talk a little bit about those guardian helmets and what do you think they provide, and then what are their limitations? Well, you know, I think the game of football has continued to evolve, and I think it's safer than it's ever been for a lot of reasons, starting at the top of the NFL all the way down to youth football. And I've been involved with Pop Warner football. We're the largest and oldest youth football league in the country, over 4,000 games every weekend. So a lot of changes have been made, and uh, frankly, I'm not sure there's a whole lot more we can do. A uh, big thing is, you know, coaches and players and athletes understanding, as well as their parents, what the symptoms are, uh, what happens if you get a concussion, what are the signs, and how, how is it treated. But identifying the symptoms and bringing that to someone's attention is the number one thing. In terms of the Guardian cap, the Guardian cap is a soft add-on on top of the helmet. It's pretty thick, several inches thick, and uh, it's a little bit like foam and it's meant to, to pad uh, the head-to-head -head hits. And it's used primarily by linemen and primarily in the preseason. And so this is the first year it's been used this widespread. I think the NFL is using it in every team in the preseason practice and not worn in games. Some colleges are using it. And uh, it does reduce somewhat, maybe 10%, the linear forces of, of, a, of a blow to the head. I'm not sure it does that to rotatory components of blows. But anyway, you see that the, the industry and the sport is trying to look for other ways to improve safety. Well, the game's evolving, as you and I have talked for years, and you have spent a lot of your time uh, talking to trainers, coaches, conferences. You're a, you're a consultant for the Big Ten and the Southeastern Conference. And you do a lot of safety training for coaches and trainers. The game's evolving. You say it's safer than it's ever been. Um, kind of your general comments about the state of football for youth sports, for moms out there who are thinking about letting their kids play at a young age and those kind of things. We've had you on to talk about that before, but give us kind of an update on where the science is and where, where you think we're headed with, uh, with concussion in youth sports. Well, youth sports, again, is also safer than it's ever been. And when we studied this or when it was studied independently for Pop Warner football, it's less than 1% of players every year get a concussion. And we know now it's not just the number of known or diagnosed concussions. It's the repetitive hits. So some, some call that subconcussive blows where there's a big hit and the, the player is not diagnosed as having a concussion. Those could accrue or add up with time. So there's been a big move to limit unnecessary hits in practice, to eliminate excessive contact practices, and then certainly in games to avoid uh, egregious open field hits head-to-head -head hits, targeting, launching, where you leave the ground to jump into a, another player's head. So all that has been done, 
and uh, you know for the for the youth player and the and the coaches and the league they play in they have to have a healthy respect for all these things and I think most do and for parents to know what the warning signs are and to make sure the coaches and the and the style of play adheres to what the, what we call now modern modern concepts of avoiding unnecessary head contact well you you've been involved with Pop Warner for years in youth sports in general but you know, you have been at the forefront of getting the safety protocols changed, uh, limitations of, of head contact, and you see a lot of those things talked about on the internet when five, eight years ago wasn't even discussed. And I think a lot of that has to do with your leadership and others uh, who are leading in that regard to reduce just extraneous, gratuitous, I think you call it, head contact, which uh, will limit, obviously, hopefully, longitudinal problems for football players. Uh, yeah, that's vital. And again, it's not just the number of concussions, it's the overall exposure. So that's what you want to, to uh, eliminate or, or limit as much as you can. And as you know, it's not just football, it's soccer, it's lacrosse, it's other sports that have the potential for head-to-head hits or hitting the ground or other things that can cause uh, the, the brain to, to suddenly move within the skull or to suddenly stop when, uh, say, the head hits the ground or a hard object. Well, you often said it's the brain sloshing inside the cranium as opposed to the, the external padding is not necessarily going to stop the brain from sloshing inside the skull. You do a lot of work with the NHL. Obviously, you live in Chicago. It's so a lot of hockey up there, the, the winter sports and those kind of things. So those issues are I'm sure at the forefront of some of the things you do in your, your practice as a surgeon and a neurosurgeon in, in Chicago. Julian, there was another fascinating thing. I know you've been involved with this. I've known about this. It's been in development for several years. But you invented and were part of a team that invented the Q-collar. This is fascinating. Explain the, the concept behind it and, and how it works and, and the genesis. Where did the idea come from about the Q-collar? Well, the idea came in. This is the first effort to protect the human brain by anything other than something outside the normal helmet we have called the skull. So this is the first attempt to protect the brain by something other than a helmet. And it's a collar that goes around the neck. It's open like a horseshoe in the front. And the tips of it gently compress the jugular vein. So we knew that the brain gets injured because it's the head suddenly stops when it's hit or hits the ground or another object. The brain can still move. It reverberates and that tears or stretches fibers and that's the way a concussion or even worse injury occurs. If the brain doesn't move within the skull, there should be no injury. So that device gently retards the flow of blood from the brain back to the heart and retains maybe a tablespoon or two of blood inside the skull, the cranium, and then makes a tighter fit that eliminates that ability for the brain to move or slosh back and forth. Uh, It received FDA clearance as the first device to protect the brain in sports. And uh, it's uh, being adopted by more and more schools and and players uh, as an alternative or an add-on in addition to the helmet. And NFL fans, uh, college fans, some of the elite colleges are starting to wear the Q collar. They're wearing them in practice now in training camp. What what teams out there are, are, are wearing them now? Maybe not the whole team, but there's certain numbers of teams out there using the Q collar. There, there's a number. Uh, I don't know, four, five, or six NFL teams. There is uh, a number of uh, college teams, SEC teams, big schools are starting to wear it. 
And look, these players and, and the coaches and, and the players' parents uh, don't want their kids to grow up and whenever they finish their playing career necessarily have uh, accepted they could have some brain injury. And it's not, again, the studies have shown with MRI scans that there can be little dings in the white matter, the connecting fibers of the brain, even without a known concussion. And that seems to be markedly reduced, probably 80% uh, by wearing the collar. The Q collar itself, it's fascinating to me. I've, I've talked to you about it for several years. It's so fascinating that y'all have clearance now with the FDA. But I assume some people would think, well, it's going to choke my kid, or how's it going to work? I, I assume you can talk a little bit about the pressure and the fact that obviously it's not going to create a choking hazard for them. It wouldn't have been approved. Uh, it's been used by hundreds of thousands of, of uh, players with con contacts and hits, and there's never been a reported problem with it. And again, that's one reason it got its FDA approval or clearance. And it's open in the front, so it's uh, C-shaped, and so there's no pressure or involvement on the windpipe. It comes to the uh, sort of the side of the front of the neck where the jugular vein is and retards a little bit that constant blood return from the brain back to the heart. And the, the obviously the concept is to try to give some protection to the brain from within the brain as opposed to the outer shell. It, it is, and this is reminiscent of what the automobile industry did in the 1950s. They figured out that you don't make a car safer by putting more and more layers of steel on the outside of a car. You do it by restraining the passengers with seat belts and airbags so they don't move, they, their body doesn't slosh and absorb energy, the energy passes through. That's called elastic collisions. It, it's fascinating, the concept of it, and to, to watch you develop that over the last few years and to finally get that to market uh, is, is just a fascinating thing. Dr. Bales, it's been probably a, a year or so since we had you on the show, and at that time we were talking about the development of the science as it relates to diagnosing chronic traumatic encephalopathy as you're alive. You and I have both been involved in this now for eight years, but talk a little bit, give, give our listeners an update on the state of the science. Well, the issue with uh, a lot of brain injuries is that, uh, you know, the, the neuroscientists tell us there are over 100 billion neurons in our brains and uh, four times that many supporting cells and 100,000 miles of connecting fibers. So a lot of important uh, real estate inside our three-pound brain. And we do not see these injuries on MRI or CT scans. They're not, they're not large enough to structurally be seen. The other thing is that the only way to make a diagnosis currently and, and throughout the, the history has been by taking a brain out at autopsy. So if you could only tell someone they had a, a problem or a disease when they were dead, you couldn't help them. So we've been involved with a company called Ceramark, which is uh, looking at a PET scan, which is a radionuclide, which is injected. Uh, intravenously and it binds to tau or amyloid proteins, the breakdown proteins that are characteristic of dementia or chronic traumatic encephalopathy in a very characteristic pattern. And we're very happy that the phase three clinical trial has been approved by the FDA and will commence uh, this year. Funding has been obtained and we're very excited uh, for, to, to look and see if we can sort of definitively prove that it, that it detects and shows this form of brain injury. 
So as the, the state of the science now, as, as it relates to tau, maybe not amyloid, but with tau protein, there, there's no drug that'll block tau or dissipate tau if you start to, to develop tau proteins in your brain, which seem to be the, the, the diagnosis factor for CTE. But so what do we do? If, if we have the scans that hopefully are coming soon that can show this pattern, so how, how do you treat, how do you help somebody who may have CTE uh, without a drug therapy? Well, the, as you said, it's really hard when there is no treatment. So the f first thing is you have to be able to make a definitive diagnosis. In the immediate term, if you're concerned and they're still playing, they should be either retired or pulled out until it can be clarified. But in someone who's already been through their playing career, there is no uh, drug treatment for it. The, the pharmaceutical industry hasn't, hasn't come up with anything. And until you can measure it by a test and perhaps see what happens to that person as they get a little bit older and see what happens uh, if there's any treatment that ever comes about. Do they improve? Does the scan look better? So you treat the symptoms, you treat the depression, you treat the anxiety, the PTSD, and counseling. And obviously the, the really tragic stories you've dealt with many times, the movie concussion dealt with so many tragic issues, but you deal with the potential suicides, but to try to retard that with counseling and other medications to treat the symptoms. That's all you can do. That's all you can do. You're treating symptoms. The four main ones we treat are, as you alluded to, are depression, uh, lack of sleep, which is also a huge problem, lack of energy, and headaches or migraines. So we have prescription drugs for those, but they're just treating the after effects. They're not getting at the cause, and they're not seeing uh, perhaps a resolution or improvement in the, the injury part of the brain. And hopefully through Ceramark's involvement, we're on a path to being able to get not only the phase three finish, but get on the road to really trying to be able to help people. And that's the whole point is healthcare and, and, and where you're headed with that. Uh, got your thoughts about a year or so ago on COVID. You had some interesting thoughts of how your massive hospital in Chicago was affected by COVID. Give us a quick update on what you see in, in your hospital and kind of how y'all are moving through the, the COVID experience. Yeah, well, as everyone knows, we're, we're over two years. We're approaching two and a half years now from the beginning of the pandemic in March or so of 2020. And at first we didn't know, we didn't know how infectious it was uh, for the patients, patient to patient transmission or patient to physician transmission or the other way, could we give it to patients? So when we looked at our first 500 patients with brain surgery, we saw that we had not given it to anyone. And if they came in, they weren't getting sick or dying from being in the hospital. Those were all uncertainties at first. So we're pretty much back to normal now, fortunately, with a very you know, cautious eye of what could come next. And I think we've learned a lot. We've improved our, our methodology and improved our techniques. But uh, so far, so good. Well, that's great. And for our, our listeners in, here in, in the Louisiana area, you're from Natchitoches. You live in Chicago. You've been there for a while. Tell our listeners a little bit about what it's like a, a week in the like, life of Dr. Julian Bales. I mean, you're a neurosurgeon, but you're still very active with your surgery, but you have administrative duties in, in, in Shreveport, excuse me, in Chicago, and you just have a lot going on. So talk a little bit about what's going on in your life and with your family as well. Uh, well, I have uh, uh, five children, and uh, three have gone to LSU, so I'm very proud of that, my alma mater. And in terms of uh, my uh, week, it's uh, uh, seeing patients, operating on patients uh, probably three or four days a week. And then it's administrative duties because I run the department. We have about uh, 
I don't know, 35 or so physicians in our department. I believe we have the largest in Chicago, so there's a lot of uh, management and uh, protocols and uh, procedures that we put in to try to get the best care we can deliver. Well, you've been a great credit to your profession, but also to football in general, and appreciate you coming on and spending a few minutes with us. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize how much time you spend going around the country and speaking about safety uh, and, and, and youth sports and those kind of things. And where, where do you see the safety of youth sports moving in the next four or five years? It's as safe as it can be, as I understand you said. Uh, or it's ever uh, been, maybe. Uh, uh, yes, as safe as it's ever been. And, and uh, we hopefully we can continue to make improvements, and it's going to be and. You know, not just uh, equipment or safety uh, uh, techniques, but also an education and understanding what the symptoms are and how concussions occur and continue to try to eliminate unnecessary gratuitous head contact. Well, I'm sure it was the message in the movie Concussion, which was follow the science, and that's what you're going to do, uh, I'm sure, in the next few years. But Dr. Julian Bells, it's always great to catch up with you. Great to have you join us on Billy West Live. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Thanks. Dr. Julian Bales has been our guest on Billy West Live.